Chapter Three, Part One of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Various matters of a literary and social nature delayed his departure until about two weeks after that walk in Munich. Finally, he gave orders to have his country house ready for occupancy within a month and one day, between the middle and the end of May, he took the night train for Trieste, where he made a stopover of only twenty-four hours, and embarked the following morning for Pola. What he was hunting was something foreign and unrelated to himself, which would at the same time be quickly within reach, and so he stopped at an island in the Adriatic, which had become well known in recent years. It lay not far off the Eastrian coast with beautifully rugged cliffs fronting the open sea, and natives who dressed in variegated tatters and made strange sounds when they spoke. But rain and a heavy atmosphere, a provincial and exclusively Austrian patronage at the hotel, and the lack of that restfully intimate association with the sea, which can be gotten only by a soft, sandy beach, irritated him, and prevented him from feeling that he had found the place he was looking for. Something within him was disturbing him, and drawing him he was not sure where. He studied sailing dates, he looked about him questioningly, and of a sudden, as a thing both astounding and self-evident, his goal was before him. If you wanted to reach overnight the unique, the fabulously different, where did you go? But that was plain. What was he doing here? He had lost the trail. He had wanted to go there. He did not delay in giving notice of his mistake in stopping here. In the early morning mist, a week and a half after his arrival on the island, a fast motor-boat was carrying him and his luggage back over the water to the naval port, and he landed there just long enough to cross the gangplank to the damp deck of a ship which was lying under steam, ready for the voyage to Venice. It was an old hulk, flying the Italian flag, decrepit, sooty, and mournful. In a cave-like, artificially lighted inside cabin, where Aschenbach, immediately upon boarding the ship, was conducted by a dirty, hunchbacked sailor, who smirked politely, there was, sitting behind a table, his hat cocked over his forehead, and a cigarette stump in the corner of his mouth, a man with a goatee, and with the face of an old-style circus director, who was taking down the particulars of the passengers, with professional grimaces, and distributing the tickets. "'To Venice,' he repeated Aschenbach's request, as he extended his arm, and plunged his pen into the pasty dregs of a precariously tilted inkwell. "'To Venice, first class, at your service, sir.' And he wrote a generous scrawl, sprinkled it with blue sand out of a box, let the sand run off into a clay bowl, folded the paper with sallow, bony fingers, and began writing again. "'A happily chosen destination,' he chatted on. "'Ah, Venice, a splendid city.' a city of irresistible attractiveness for the educated on account of its history as well as its present-day charms. The smooth rapidity of his movements, and the empty words accompanying them, had something anaesthetic and reassuring about them, 
much as though he feared lest the traveller might still be vacillating in his decision to go to venice he handled the cash briskly and let the change fall on the spotted table cover with the skill of a croupier a pleasant journey sir he said with a theatrical bow gentlemen i have the honour of serving you he called out immediately after with his arm upraised and he acted as if business were in full swing although no one else was there to require his attention aschenbach returned to the deck with one arm on the railing he watched the passengers on board and the idlers who loitered about the dock waiting for the ship to sail the second-class passengers men and women were huddled together on the foredeck using boxes and bundles as seats a group of young people made up the travellers on the first deck clerks from pola it seemed who had gathered in the greatest excitement for an excursion to italy they made a considerable fuss about themselves and their enterprise chattered laughed enjoyed their own antics self-contentedly and leaning over the handrails shouted flippantly and mockingly at their comrades who with portfolios under their arms were going up and down the waterfront on business and kept threatening the picnickers with their canes one in a bright yellow summer suit of ultra-fashionable cut with a red necktie and a rakishly tilted panama surpassed all the others in his crowing good humour but as soon as aschenbach looked at him a bit more carefully he discovered with a kind of horror that the youth was a cheat he was old that was unquestionable there were wrinkles around his eyes and mouth the faint crimson of the cheeks was paint the hair under his brilliantly decorated straw hat was a wig his neck was hollow and stringy his turned-up moustache and the imperial on his chin were dyed the full set of yellow teeth which he displayed when he laughed a cheap artificial plate and his hands with signet rings on both index fingers were those of an old man fascinated with loathing aschenbach watched him in his intercourse with his friends did they not know did they not observe that he was old that he was not entitled to wear their bright foppish clothing that he was not entitled to play at being one of them unquestioningly and as quite the usual thing it seemed they allowed him among them treating him as one of their own kind and returning his jovial nudges in the ribs without repugnance how could that be aschenbach laid his hand on his forehead and closed his eyes they were hot since he had had too little sleep he felt as though everything were not quite the same as usual as though some dream-like estrangement some peculiar distortion of the world were beginning to take possession of him and perhaps this could be stopped if he hid his face for a time and then looked around him again yet at this moment he felt as though he were swimming and looking up with an unreasoned fear he discovered that the heavy lugubrious body of the ship was separating slowly from the walled bank inch by inch with the driving and reversing of the engine the strip of dirty glistening water widened between the dock and the side of the ship and after cumbersome manoeuvring the steamer finally turned its nose towards the open sea aschenbach crossed to the starboard side where the hunchback had set up a deck-chair for him and a steward in a spotted dress-coat asked after his wants 
The sky was grey, the wind damp. Harbour and islands had been left behind, and soon all land was lost in the haze. Flakes of coal dust, bloated with moisture, fell over the washed deck, which would not dry. After the first hour an awning was spread, since it had begun to rain. Bundled up in his coat, a book in his lap, the traveller rested, and the hours passed unnoticed. It stopped raining, the canvas awning was removed, the horizon was unbroken, the sea, empty, like an enormous disk, lay stretched under the curve of the sky. But in empty inarticulate space our senses lose also the dimensions of time, and we slip into the incommensurate. As he rested, strange shadowy figures, the old dandy, the goatee from the inside cabin, passed through his mind with vague gestures, muddled dream-words, and he was asleep. About noon he was called to a meal down in the corridor-like dining-hall, into which the doors opened from the sleeping-cabins. He ate near the head of a long table, at the other end of which the clerks, including the old man, had been drinking with the boisterous captain since ten o'clock. The food was poor, and he finished rapidly. He felt driven outside to look at the sky, to see if it showed signs of being brighter above Venice. He kept thinking that this had to occur, since the city had always received him in full blaze. But sky and sea remained dreary and leaden. At times a misty rain fell, and here he was reaching by water a different Venice than he had ever found when approaching on land. He stood by the forestays, looking in the distance, waiting for land. He thought of the heavy-hearted, enthusiastic poet for whom the domes and bell-towers of his dreams had once risen out of these waters. He relived in silence some of that reverence, happiness, and sorrow which had been turned then into cautious song and easily susceptible to sensations already moulded, he asked himself wearily and earnestly whether some new enchantment and distraction, some belated adventure of the emotions, might still be held in store for this idle traveller. Then the flat coast emerged on the right. The sea was alive with fishing smacks. The bather's island appeared. It dropped behind to the left. The steamer slowly entered the narrow port which is named after it, and on the lagoon, facing gay ramshackled houses, it stopped completely, since it had to wait for the bark of the health department. An hour passed before it appeared. He had arrived, and yet he had not. No one was in any hurry, no one was driven by impatience. The young men from Pola, patriotically attracted by the military bugle-calls, which rang over the water from the vicinity of the public gardens, had come on deck, and, warmed by their asti, they burst out with cheers for the drilling bersaglieri. But it was repulsive to see what a state the primped-up old man had been brought to by his comradeship with youth. His old head was not able to resist its wine, like the young and robust. He was painfully drunk, with glazed eyes, a cigarette between his trembling fingers, he stood in one place, swaying backwards and forwards from giddiness, and balancing himself laboriously. Since he would have fallen at the first step, he did not trust himself from the spot, yet he showed a deplorable insolence, 
buttonholed everyone who came near him, stammered, winked, and tittered, lifted his wrinkled, ornamented index finger in a stupid attempt at bantering, while he licked the corners of his mouth with his tongue in the most abominably suggestive manner. Aschenbach observed him darkly, and a feeling of numbness came over him again, as though the world were displaying a faint but irresistible tendency to distort itself into the peculiar and the grotesque, a feeling which circumstances prevented him from surrendering himself to completely, for just then the pounding activity of the engines commenced again, and the ship, resuming a voyage which had been interrupted so near its completion, passed through the San Marco Canal. So he saw it again, the most remarkable of landing-places, that blinding composition of fantastic buildings which the Republic lays out before the eyes of approaching seafarers, the soft splendor of the palace, the bridge of sighs, on the bank of the columns with lion and saint, the advancing showy flank of the enchanted temple, the glimpse through to the archway, and the huge giant clock. And as he looked on, he thought that to reach Venice by land, on the railroad, was like entering a palace from the rear, and that the most unreal of cities should not be approached, except as he was now doing, by ship, over the high seas. The engine stopped, gondolas pressed in, the gangway was let down, customs officials climbed on board and discharged their duties perfunctorily. The disembarking could begin. Aschenbach made it understood that he wanted a gondola to take him and his luggage to the dock of those little steamers which ply between the city and the Lido, since he intended to locate near the sea. His plans were complied with, his wants were shouted down to the water, where the gondoliers were wrangling with one another in dialect. He was still hindered from descending, he was hindered by his trunk which was being pulled and dragged with difficulty down the ladder-like steps, so that for some minutes he was not able to avoid the importunities of the atrocious old man, whose drunkenness gave him a sinister desire to do the foreigner parting honours. "'We wish you a very agreeable visit,' he bleated, as he made an awkward bow. "'We leave with pleasant recollections. Au revoir, excuse, and bonjour, your excellency.' his mouth watered, he pressed his eyes shut, he licked the corners of his mouth, and the dyed imperial turned up about his senile lips. "'Our compliments,' he mumbled, with two fingertips on his mouth. "'Our compliments to our sweetheart, the dearest, prettiest sweetheart.' And suddenly his false upper teeth fell down on his lower lip. Aschenbach was able to escape. To our sweetheart, our handsome sweetheart, he heard the cooing, hollow, stuttering voice behind him, while supporting himself against the handrail, he went down the gangway. Who would not have to suppress a fleeting shudder, a vague timidity and uneasiness, if it were a matter of boarding a Venetian gondola for the first time, or after several years? The strange craft, an entirely unaltered survival from the times of balladry, with that peculiar blackness which is found elsewhere only in coffins. It suggests silent, criminal adventures in the rippling night. It suggests even more strongly death itself, the beer and the mournful funeral, 
and the last silent journey and has it been observed that the seat of such a bark this armchair of coffin black veneer and dull black upholstery is the softest most luxuriant most lulling seat in the world aschenbach noted this when he had relaxed at the feet of the gondolier opposite his luggage which lay neatly assembled on the prow the rowers were still wrangling harshly incomprehensibly with threatening gestures but the strange silence of this canal city seemed to soften their voices to disembody them and dissipate them over the water it was warm here in the harbour touched faintly by the warm breeze of the siraco leaning back against the limber portions of the cushions the traveller closed his eyes in the enjoyment of a lassitude which was as unusual with him as it was sweet the trip would be short he thought if only it went on for ever he felt himself glide with a gentle motion away from the crowd and the confusion of voices it became quieter and quieter around him there was nothing to be heard but the splashing of the oar the hollow slapping of the waves against the prow of the boat as it stood above the water black and bold and armed with its halberd-like tip and a third sound of speaking of whispering the whispering of the gondolier who was talking to himself between his teeth fitfully in words that were pressed out by the exertion of his arms aschenbach looked up and was slightly astonished to discover that the lagoon was widening and he was headed for the open sea this seemed to indicate that he ought not to rest too much but should see to it that his wishes were carried out to the steamer dock he repeated turning around completely and looking into the face of the gondolier who stood behind on a raised platform and towered up between him and the dun-coloured sky he was a man of unpleasant even brutal appearance dressed in sailor blue with a yellow sash a formless straw hat its weave partially unravelled was tilted insolently on his head the set of his face the blond curly moustache beneath a curtly turned-up nose undoubtedly meant that he was not italian although of somewhat frail build so that one would not have thought him especially well suited to his trade he handled the oar with great energy throwing his entire body into each stroke occasionally he drew back his lips from the exertion and disclosed his white teeth wrinkling his reddish brows he gazed on past his passenger as he answered deliberately almost gruffly you are going to the lido aschenbach replied of course but i have just taken the gondola to get me across to san marco i want to use the vaporetto you cannot use the vaporetto sir and why not because the vaporetto will not haul luggage that was so aschenbach remembered he was silent but the fellow's harsh presumptuous manner so unusual towards a foreigner here seemed unbearable he said that is my affair perhaps i want to put my things in storage you will turn back there was silence the oar splashed the water thudded against the bow and the talking and whispering began again the gondolier was talking to himself between his teeth what was to be done this man was strangely insolent and had an uncanny decisiveness 
the traveller alone with him on the water saw no way of getting what he wanted and besides how softly he could rest if only he did not become excited hadn't he wanted the trip to go on and on forever it was wisest to let things take their course and the main thing was that he was comfortable the poison of inertia seemed to be issuing from the seat from this low black upholstered armchair so gently cradled by the oar strokes of this imperious gondolier behind him the notion that he had fallen into the hands of a criminal passed dreamily across aschenbach's mind without the ability to summon his thoughts to an active defence the possibility that it was all simply a plan for cheating him seemed more abhorrent a feeling of duty or pride a kind of recollection that one should prevent such things gave him the strength to arouse himself once more he asked what are you asking for the trip looking down upon him the gondolier answered you will pay it was plain how this should be answered aschenbach said mechanically i shall pay nothing absolutely nothing if you don't take me where i want to go you want to go to the lido but not with you i am rowing you well that is so he thought and relaxed that is so you are rowing me well even if you do have designs on my cash and send me down to pluto with a blow of your oar from behind you have rowed me well but nothing like that happened they were even joined by others a boatload of musical brigands men and women who sang to guitar and mandolin riding persistently side by side with the gondola and filling the silence over the water with their covetous foreign poetry a hat was held out and aschenbach threw in money then they stopped singing and rowed away and again the muttering of the gondolier could be heard as he talked fitfully and jerkily to himself so they arrived tossed in the wake of a steamer plying towards the city two municipal officers their hands behind their backs their faces turned in the direction of the lagoon were walking back and forth on the bank aschenbach left the gondola at the dock supported by that old man who was stationed with his grappling-hook at each one of venice's landing-places and since he had no small money he crossed over to the hotel by the steamer wharf to get change and pay the rower what was due him he got what he wanted in the lobby he returned and found his travelling bags in a cart on the dock and gondola and gondolier had vanished he got out in a hurry said the old man with the grappling hook a bad man a man without a license sir he is the only gondolier who doesn't have a license the others telephoned here aschenbach shrugged his shoulders the gentleman rode for nothing the old man said and held out his hat aschenbach tossed in a coin he gave instructions to have his luggage taken to the beach hotel and followed the cart through the avenue the white-blossomed avenue which lined on both sides with taverns shops and boarding-houses runs across the island to the shore end of chapter three part one